And Lord, we look forward to that time when every tongue, every tribe, and every nation will say that you are God, that you are king, that you are sovereign, that you are Lord of all. Lord, we look forward to next week with Unity Sunday, with all the congregations coming in, and that we can declare and proclaim your word joyfully and triumphantly. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, you may be seated. There's no question I love Jimmy Green and the band and the song that is sang about He Reigns. The verses I'm about to speak to you apply to all believers worldwide. Whether you're 17 growing up in the Czech Republic, empty and depressed and lonely, you know, in the Czech Republic now, um, the average person is drinking 40 uh, gallons of alcohol every year. So when you think about George and his work there, we pull the house lights up, think about the Czechs and the Czech Republic and the people of Czech. And there's all kinds of people in Czech Republic. There's people like wheat. We call them the wheat Czechs. And there's people there that like rice. They're the rice Czechs. And then there's people like corn. They're the corn Czechs. Some year they may like this, George, when we do this. You'll know George is in town. I tell that joke. Or whether you're, <laughs> whether you're an orphan growing up in, um, in the Central, Af- in Central African Republic, Bangui, and you don't have parents because they perished with the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Or whether you're 11 living in Ecuador on the Amazon and you're about to hear this good news of Jesus Christ because our team's coming down. And there's this fungus on your feet in this tropical place but somebody loved you enough to treat you and share the good news of salvation. Or whether you're 16 living in mainland China, part of the underground movement there, and it's an amazing thing God is doing in China. Now there's over 100 million believers there. I'm so glad George is learning Chinese, and so many here also are learning the Chinese language. Or whether you're a student growing up here in America, where you're inundated with messages from the media that run so counter just about everything I'm going to say. But I agree with this statement. Maybe you'll agree also. That children are 15% of our population, but children are 100% of our future. Amen? The strategy that most have employed in America with regard to spiritual formation is what I call the drop-off philosophy. We uh, drop our kids off at school to get an education, and we drop them off at the field to play a sport, Then we drop them off at guitar lessons to learn guitar or ballet school to learn ballet. And we drop them off at church because we don't feel competent to pass on our faith. You see, God has asked the parent to disciple their children, to teach their children to love the Lord their God with all their hearts and impress these principles upon their heart when they walk about the house teaching their kids these things. It's a very powerful thing when the household and the church get together to disciple our kids. So I'm going to start by talking about your children. You have to know that as a parent, when you're at home with your kids, you're writing software, a software code into their heads. You want, as a parent, to be writing good software, a good code into their heads. When we're born, life is all about us, right? When we're wet and we cry, somebody comes to change our diaper. And when we're hungry, we cry, and somebody comes to give us something to eat. And when we're lonely, we cry, and somebody holds us. But then we turn two, and we begin to hear no and say no. 
No, I don't want any applesauce. No, I don't want to put away my toys. No, I don't want to go to bed. You as the parent must take charge of your children early in their lives, especially if they're strong-willed. I'm not talking about being harsh or gruff or stern, but you are the boss. You are in charge. You are the parent. Say with me these words, I am the parent. I, say it a little louder. I am the parent. Yes. I think what's happened in our country is we became pretty tentative about parenting, like the mother who called the doctor's office and said, I think my child has a fever. And the doctor said to her, well, have you taken his temperature? And he said, my child won't let me put the thermometer in his mouth. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Remember the first statement, you are the parent? Uh Susanna Wesley, who raised 17 children, including John and Charles Wesley, she said the first thing in parenting is to form the mind of the child. The first thing you must do is conquer the will. The parent's will must be surrendered to the will of God so as to teach and model that before your children that they will surrender their wills also to the will of God. To bring your children to obedience. That's the end game. So whatever you're doing with them, with your word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a number of power struggles that happen in parenting. One of those is at bedtime. One one toddler said, I'm not going back in that crib for as long as I live. Any six-year-old can be creative with postponing going to bed. You know, the extra drink of water, you know, the uh, nighttime snack, the trips to the bathroom. We had two of our kids who sort of like postponed going to bed. But a parent is the boss, right? And one parent said, tonight's going to be different. I'm going to help you get your pajamas on. We're going to have a bedtime snack. I'm going to tuck you into bed, say our prayers, read a story. And then we're going to say goodbye and I'll see you in the morning. And the child said, yes, Daddy, I understand. So about five minutes later, the child said, Daddy, I need a drink of water. First of all, the daddy ignored the child. (laughs) Then the child said again, Daddy, I need a drink of water. And he said, if you ask me one more time for a drink of water, I'm going to come in there and spank you. And the child said, Daddy, when you come here to spank me, can you bring me a glass of water? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So there's bedtime where there's this power struggle, and then there's food, eating of food. The eating of food can be a battleground because we all want our children to eat and enjoy broccoli. But a kid can hold out against the eating of broccoli. So I encourage you, rather than pleading and begging and bribing and threatening your kids, to simply serve them good nutritional food. And if they don't eat it, serve them later some good nutritional food. I would rather eat zucchini squash than junk food because I grew up eating zucchini squash. I would rather eat a strawberry than a strawberry starburst because we grew up eating strawberries. I would rather eat, rather eat a cluster of grapes than some sweetened grape juice. You know what I'm trying to say? As a parent, be the parent and serve up some good nutritional food for your kids. And then there's schoolwork where there's battleground. Perhaps there's no greater source of conflict than schoolwork, especially the part to be done at home. Now, fortunately, school is almost over, or it's over for some. And a child will ask, do you have any homework, we'll say. 
I didn't get any homework at school, or I did all my homework at school. Thank goodness for Pinnacle, where the assignments and grades are being posted now, where the gap between what a child knows and what the parent knows can be bridged. Yes. <laughs> so what does the Bible have to say about the household? Let's begin in Colossians 3 and verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Love your husband enough, the Bible says, to yield or defer to him. Your submission to your husband flows out of your submission to God. We are called in Christian relationships, 521, to submit to one another out of our fear or reverence for Christ. Mutual submission, then, is at the heart of every Christian relationship. Neither of us is trying to dominate the other, trying to be the boss, or trying to lord over. Submission is not something we can force on somebody else. It's not me, Tarzan, you, Jane, submit to me, woman. Many women are afraid to submit because they have been tyrannized by men in their life, by being required to wear certain kinds of clothes. That's much more Muslim than it is Christian. Requiring her to only go certain places or allotting a certain amount of money, kind of making her your slave, allotting certain kinds of food. Because a woman doesn't feel safe, she says, I will not submit myself to any man. Now, I have stood with young couples about to get married, and the woman will say to me, I don't want to say I will submit myself to him. And what I will always say is, you're not ready to get married. You see, in life, sometimes the light, the light is broken. And a police officer stands there at the intersection. And there's traffic coming from every direction. And so he tells one side to stop and one side to go. And then he tells the other side to stop and then to go. What you're trying to avoid there at that intersection is a collision. The only way you're going to avoid collision in life is by submission, by yielding yourself one to the other, not trying to be in control. That's why the Bible says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And as the, Christ, as the church submits herself to Christ, so the wife should submit herself to her husband and everything. When Debbie and I were engaged, we lived in two different cities. She lived in Wheaton, Illinois, and I lived in Winona Lake, Indiana. And it was my desire for Debbie to come and live with me in Winona Lake, Indiana. So I asked her to marry me and then to come once we were married to live together. And so Debbie had to leave her home where she was living and teaching to come to live with me. And I said to her, is this your very first act of submission? She said, yes, but you're an easy one to submit to. <laughs> you see, submission on the part of the wife is to the love of her husband. Some of you women are facing a battle right now regarding submission. You don't know exactly where to submit. To submit to your husband as to how to educate your children, how to discipline the kids, whether to move to another city, a major decision you make together. But let me tell you this. God has not called you to be a doormat to be stepped on. God has not called you to be a bug to be squashed. 
God has called you to be a human being, submissive yourself to God. And to the degree you submit yourself to God, you can submit yourself to your husband. Secondly, God speaks to the husbands. He says to love your wife. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. To love your wife with tenderness and not to be harsh with her. To love your wife with forgiveness and not hold grudges against her. To love your wife with faithfulness and do not break covenant with her. To love your wife with your presence and do not neglect or abandon her. We're talking about an incarnational kind of love. Loving one another even as Jesus has loved us. And love will always require an effort. There was a guy who really didn't like art and art exhibits and art museums. And his friend knew that. And his friend asked him one night, he says, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to the art museum, the art exhibit. And he said, why? He said, because my wife has an exhibit there at the art museum. You see, God has given her a talent, a gift. And I love to see what she puts down on the canvas. And the guy said, well, you don't even like art museums. And he said, I love my wife. And being with her gives me another opportunity to fall in love with her all over again. You see, that fella is trying to be present with his wife in doing that something she loves. To love somebody will always require time and effort. To those whose love languages touch, love is a good back rub or a good foot massage or just holding hands. When's the last time you guys just took your wife by the hand and held her hand and just claimed her? To those whose love language is affirmation, love is hearing, I appreciate you. Love is hearing, I need to hear your advice about something. Now, you women need to know that when you ask your husband for his opinion about something, his advice, he feels very honored by you, that you're valuing his point of view, his perspective. You're letting him in on the equation. You really want to hear what he has to say. To those whose love language is gifts, love is writing for her a song or selecting for her a song or singing a song together. Love is writing her a note. Love is thinking of something she likes to do and doing it with her. To those whose love language is deeds of service, love is saying, I'll take care of that. Perhaps the sweetest music to my wife Debbie's ears is, I'll take care of that. That's one thing you don't have to worry about. You see, putting love into action, to love that beautiful wife of yours, when she needs to be held to hold her, and when she needs to talk, to listen to her. And when she needs to vent, to give her some room to vent. When she needs to process, to dialogue with her. When she needs to tackle something, to empower her. And when she needs to be lifted up, to encourage her. Many husbands in the American culture are finding it very hard to love their wives with all the distractions. Now we have smartphones and iPhones and cell phones and Blackberries. And we can continually keep up with our texts, text messages. So we have to hear this beep and we look. <laughs> I like to say that most of us guys are only one gadget away from contentment. It used to be we went to work and work had walls and we worked from 8 to 5. Technology has done away with all of these structures. Now when you go home to be with your wife and your kids, 
They can find you, right? They can call you. They can text you. They can email you. So especially if you have an A, type A boss, <laughs> you need to protect your time at home. So I have a rule, and here's the rule of my life. I usually don't work at home. I definitely don't read emails at home. If you ever see an email from me, it would be generated here from the church. Now, Debbie will print me out emails because she's online quite a bit. And um, there's times when I don't even listen to my cell phone. There's times at home when the phone rings and I don't pick it up. And here's another thing we do. Usually on Friday night, Debbie and I will go out for a date. And usually on Mondays, we'll have lunch together. That happens nearly every week of our life. We're together for lunch on Mondays, and we're together for a date on Friday. We saw Shrek this last Friday. And then once a year, we'll go to Chincoteague, this place down on the shore. And we'll look forward to going down as a family, and we'll reflect back on the years we have gone down to Chincoteague. You see, God really wants us to love each other. And he wants a husband to love his wife and not to embitter his heart toward her, to be tender towards her. And then to children. What does God say about to children? I want to speak to you kids who are at home. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. In Ephesians it says, children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long upon the earth. The call to children to obey their parents is right. It's in accordance with natural law. We would say that in a culture, a society, where children obey and respect their parents, that society is strong. But where children do not love and do not respect and honor their parents, we would say the society is weak. What would you say then about America? My kids grew up knowing that under, under no conditions could they ever disrespect or sass their mother. We had a um, bottle of Tabasco sauce, and when someone sassed their mom, they got a drop of Tabasco sauce. And by their adolescence, the Tabasco sauce was down to about half. I also bought paddle ball paddles. Now, you know those paddle balls with the staple on it and the, the rubber band and the ball? We would take the staple off and the rubber band and the ball and use the paddle upon their bottoms. From the time they were three until they were about eight, I paddled their little bottoms. That's why Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18 says, Discipline your son for in that there is hope. What's going on in America is not discipline. What's going on in this country is more like nagging. Joey, stop that. Joey, didn't I tell you to knock that off? Joey, if I have to tell you one more time, Joey, if you do that again, I'm going to put you in timeout. Joey, I'm going to tell your dad about it when he gets home. Parents, discipline your children. Your children desperately need to be disciplined. A child who is a disciple needs discipline. That's why Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. 
You see, children will do foolish things. That's why you're their parent, to discipline them, they'll become wise. That's why Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Discipline produces practical righteousness. You associate pain with behavior that is out of line. You learn the difference between what's right and what's wrong. And you realize your parents really love you. (laughs) So kids, when your parents bring the heat, when they bring the discipline, realize they're showing you real love. If you love your children, then you will discipline them. So my daughter this year was a teacher. And one of the rules of her classroom was, you shall not sass your teacher. Where do you think she learned that from? She learned that from living, up, living in my house. You see, what discipline does is it creates external structure. It creates boundaries for children. They learn what's right and wrong. They can develop internal structure and internalize the values of that household. You really need to discipline your kids. And the scripture says, not only are you to obey your parents' kids, but also to honor your mother and your father. And that's a command with two promises, that it may go well with you and that you may live long upon this earth. Simply put, children are to obey their parents and to honor them because it is commanded of God. And if they will obey, it will improve the quality of their life, it will go well for them, and the quantity of their life that they may live long upon this earth. Now, suppose you have a daughter. And the daughter has a boyfriend. Okay, for all you daughters out there. And you establish a rule in the house that no boy will ever come inside this house when we're not home. And under no conditions will this boy ever go into your bedroom. So you decide that you're going to establish this rule out of love for your daughter. But she says to you, Dad... I don't understand the rule. In my room is my computer, and my boyfriend and I can look at the Facebook together. And in my room is my stereo. We can listen to music together. You know, Dad, nothing's going to ever happen inside my room, inside my bedroom. If I invite my boyfriend in my bedroom, nothing will ever happen. Now, even though your child doesn't understand the rule, the implications of the rule, the rule is made for their safety. You want them to internalize the discipline that it becomes their rule. So when my son-in-law, Matt, came to my house two days before his wedding, he said, Pastor R., can I have permission to go to Betsy's bedroom? I need to haul some furniture out of there to my house where we're going to live together. And I said, Matt, you have my permission. You need to create structure for your kids. Your kids cannot create this kind of structure on their own. You need to create boundaries, external structure, that these boundaries can be internalized and become their own. So someday they're going to be on a college campus, right? And there will be all kinds of offers and invitations. And now what they were taught at home, they can live out on that college campus. So what is required then in regards to obeying your parents. To obey, obedience is literally 
to come under the teaching of. That's why parents are always saying, listen to me. Because when a person is listening to their parents, they're trying to understand what they are saying. The call to honor your parents goes beyond obedience. To honor your parents means to really love them and to cherish them, to regard them highly and to show them respect. At various times throughout the course of the year, Betsy's first year of marriage, she has asked me her advice on how to handle matters. And I have felt honored as, his fa- as her father that she has asked. Though the call to obey will outgrow us, outlive us, the call to honor will never go away. We are called to honor our mother and father for as long as they live. You know, for me, when I was a kid, I did not grow up respectful to my mother. My mother would say things to me like, how was your day, sweetie? And I, was, I would not answer her, or I would say stuff like it was none of your business, or stuff like, why do you want to know? Or I'd say stuff like, I can't live with conditions like this. Because I created a wall between myself and my mother. There was my world and her world. And I was not going to let her inside my world. I was very dishonoring, disrespectful, and I have a lot of regrets about how I lived in my adolescence. But when I became a believer, God began to break all that down. And I have a very tender relationship now with my mother. And I really do try to honor her for as long as she lives. And lastly, it says to the fathers, do not embitter your children. Do not provoke your children to anger. Don't make them seethe with resentment. You ask yourself the question, how do I provoke my son to anger, my daughter to anger? Well, asking them to do stuff beyond their capacity, comparing them with their siblings, making impossible demands upon them, What I'm learning, (laughs) as my kids get a little older, is when I make a request of them, something like cut the grass, not to expect from them to do it exactly when I ask it, but to say, can you have it done, say, by the end of today or by the end of the weekend, to give them some liberty to begin to obey within the time frame when they can. We can so try to control their lives that they become so angry with us. A father was home with his daughter, his daughter's, they were 7 and 10. And as it were, the mother was away till Sunday about 6 o'clock. So the father said, at 5 kids, we're going to clean the house up. We're going to wash the dishes. We're going to put away all this stuff. So at about 5 o'clock, the daughter, who was 7, who had out all of her little animals and doll babies, began to put them in a stroller and push them up the steps. When she was pushing them up the steps, the stroller fell over and all the doll babies and animals fell out. And she began to cry and to sulk. She kind of had a hissy fit. And so the father said to her, two-year-olds sulk and cry. When when you want to be seven, I'll talk to you. And she said, Daddy, now I'm seven. He said, but I need a little more time for you to think about this. He said, and and, um, what did you do? And she said, what I did was I put all my animals and my doll babies in the stroller and tried to push them up the steps, but it didn't work. And he said to her, what could you have done? And she said, I guess I could have carried them one by one up to my room. 
He said, and now you're acting like a seven-year-old. You don't want your seven-year-olds acting like a two-year-old. You don't want your 17-year-old acting like an 11-year-old. You don't want your 27-year-old living in your basement acting like a 12-year-old. What you want is you want to empower your children to be responsible for themselves, to begin to solve some of their own problems, to face life's challenges, and to empower them. So fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. What you want to do is you want to empower them so as to face life and tackle their own problems. And finally, the Bible says about this, Slaves, and obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it when not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That just as love and respect characterizes marriage, and love and respect characterizes parent-child relationships, so love and respect characterizes the relationship of an employer with the employee. To not only do it when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of your heart and reverence for the Lord. What this reminds me of is of gym class, and we had push-ups to do. And we would do the push-ups only when the eye of the coach was upon us. But when the coach turned his look away, we stopped doing our push-ups. When a person does push-ups with sincerity of the heart, they're doing them whether the coach is looking or not. And when you're an employee with the attitude of honoring your boss, you will do your work whether the boss is looking or not. God wants us to live out this life with sincerity in our heart. Perhaps that's why he says, whatever you do, whether you are a wife or a husband or not yet even married, whether you are a child or a parent, whether you're an employee or an employer, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. I'd like to close with this, and Pastor Mike will be up. There was a young man who did not have a good relationship with his family. In fact, very early in his life, his mom and dad split up. And his dad moved out to the West Coast, and he lived here on the East Coast. So he resolved within his soul that he would go to where his dad was and rebuild his relationship. And then that's the desire of many of you to rebuild that relationship, if it can be. So he went out West, and he took his dad to dinner. And uh, he discovered while they're eating dinner, this was his dad's birthday. And so he asked the waiters to come over, you know, and sing happy birthday to his dad. Something his dad had never done for him, sing happy birthday. Something his dad had never done to honor him or show an interest in him. Something his dad had never done to give him a gift. But the young man discovered that when love was flowing through his heart, there was such a release in his life when he began to love his dad like Christ had loved him. When he began to forgive his dad like God had forgiven him. He felt it was such a power that went through his soul. It was as if there was the pilot light coming back on in his soul. There was a time in my own house when the pilot light pilot light had gone out. We had gas heat when I was growing up. And the task for me was 
to relight that pilot that had gone out. The house had become cold. We had uh, blankets on and sweaters. But the house had become cold and kind of frigid. And my task was to strike a new match and apply it to that gas, that pilot, and relight the furnace. And when the house became warm again, it was a pleasant house to be in because now the furnace was working. You see, there's part of us that begins to shut down because we've been injured and wounded. But when we begin to hear the voice of God and follow the Good Shepherd, and wives truly begin to submit to their husbands, and husbands begin to love their wives, and children begin to honor and obey their parents, and parents begin to empower their children. It's like the pilot light comes back on in the house where there's warmth, where there used to be strife and division. Now there becomes harmony. And so we gather now in Jesus' name. And we want to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us on that cross. And Pastor Mike's going to say a few words before we celebrate communion together.